This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3349 for Thursday, the 3rd of June 2021. Today's show is entitled Linux in Laws S01E31. Interview with Paul Ramsey Foss aficionado and entrepreneur and is part of the series Linux in Laws. It is hosted by Monochromic and is about 65 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is an interview with Paul Ramsey, Floss entrepreneur and open geo fame. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever fancies you tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mom! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusty guide dog, unless on speed, and QT Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to something called Linux In-Laws, season one episode feeling like 215, but I reckon it's, it's lower than that. Tonight we have a very special guest, a chap called Paul Ramsey, but by, why, Paul, don't you introduce yourself? Uh, well, sure. Um, I'm, I'm Paul Ramsey. I'm a, an open source developer in the Postgres ecosystem. Um, and, and really most closely associated with the, with a spatial extension to Postgres called PostGIS. Um, PostGIS is the Postgres as Oracle Spatial is to Oracle. It, uh, it adds a geospatial type and all the required functions and index bindings that are necessary to make that type useful. So it's kind of thing that this gets used by companies and governments that have information about the world, about land, about where things are. And want to, in the same way that relational databases are used for ordinary data, want to organize and query that data quickly. Excellent. Before think, we go uh, into the... yeah, sorry, sorry, that's going to sorry, add go to ahead. That. Um, um, I think would you say that Post PostGIS is the most popular Postgres extension out there? Um, what is it? The most popular extension? It's certainly the one that people point to most often when they point yeah. to Postgres and say, Postgres has got a huge or got a cool yeah. extension <laughs> ecosystem and the coolest extension is this. I don't know if it's necessarily the most popular. Probably the most popular are some of the smaller extensions that live inside of Postgres contrib. You know, mm-hmm. PG stat statements probably gets used a lot more. True. It's true. Yeah. a broader utility. But in terms of being like the marquee extension, I would say mm-hmm. that, yeah, we locked that down about 15 years ago when we haven't <laughs> yeah. let go. Cool, cool. Sorry, please carry on. Yeah, and before we go into the nitty-gritty details of the of how the implementation works, maybe we can take a step yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul, I when prepping for the show, I came a very interesting presentation of yours that you gave at um, what's it called Foss for Geo something like this in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, where I no- yeah. yeah, exactly where. I noticed that when, when watching this presentation, it's not so much about the subject matter at hand, yeah. namely, namely um, geospatial databases, but rather something 
about the greater FOSS ecosystem and uh, midlife crisis and so forth, given the fact that, <laughs> yes, we are all old and we're yeah. going to die eventually. <laughs> <laughs> some some um, sooner than others. <laughs> yes, um, ex- exactly. Um, needless yeah. to say, listeners, dear listeners, you will find the links in the show notes, both goes without saying. But Paul raised a very few interesting observations in this presentation and for the very few listeners who are not familiar with the presentation, maybe you can give a quick recap of what you said and why you said it, because I think that presentation is a very fascinating, interesting one. Yeah. So I've been talking, um, I, I was invited to give a keynote for the first time at Phosphagy in 2009 in Sydney. And at the time I chose for my topic, um, business models uh, for open source software companies. And, and I ended up keep um, sort of revisiting it because it's a very interesting problem slash topic is like, how does open source the uh, economy of people giving software to each other um, and, and exchanging value for, you know, no economic tokens interact with the larger economy of people um, exchanging services and goods for monetary tokens. And it's, uh, it's been this sort of repeated theme has been helped by the fact that every few years, it feels like the world flips on its head and, and, and changes. And there's always a new, a new facet to look at the problem from. And at the time I gave the first talk, 2009, the, the dominant model for Commercialization of open source was, was, was the idea space is really dominated by Red Hat and the idea of um, some form of enterprise support, and that has very much changed in the in the ten years ten years since. Um, and and while I covered a bunch of different bits and pieces about open source in that talk, it, it finished off with with what I consider like the current big economic challenge that open source faces, which is the, this new ecosystem in which the organizations that are extracting the most monetary value from open source software are the cloud providers. Um, and and there's, there's other companies sort of on similar metrics that perhaps have, have better um, Excuses or reasons for their model or, or can, can provide, you know, better examples of the value they provide to their customers. The cloud providers, um, are taking more or less unaltered open source software and spinning it in the cloud and charging a, a premium above their, uh, their raw compute, um, costs for this open source on a compute cluster service. And because the cloud is taking off like gangbusters, their revenue from open source now easily exceeds even the, the largest former companies that were doing open source. So, you know, Red Hat is a 2 billion company and AWS is like a 20 billion. I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but at this point, Red Hat has gone, gone from being like the biggest thing in, uh, in the open source ecosystem or economy to very, very much, uh, an also ran in terms of revenue numbers. And that's when you just look at AWS without looking at, you know, Azure and Google and, and the other main cloud providers. So. If, unless you want to interrupt me, I kind of want to back into why that's important. Uh, no, yeah, that's no, definitely. Yeah, that leads to a very interesting discussion about licensing, but we're going to go, but we're going to oh, touch yeah, upon that after, yeah. after, after Martin's question, of course. Yeah, I guess, I mean, licensing is, is part of it, but I think it's almost like a sideshow. Um, cause like even before you get to like open source, uh, you're living in a digital economy, you're working with software, right? Um, and software's digital good has, you know, a zero replication cost. So unlike, you know, any other good, like even, even intellectual goods like books, um, you know, they always had a replication cost, which served to allow sort of a marketplace of scarcity to exist. You know, in order to get a book, you had to be able to make a copy of that book. And there's a limited number of copies. There's always some, some scarcity there, but digital goods don't have any built in scarcity. You can make as many copies as you want. It doesn't have any effect on the, on the source material. Um, so if you're going to build a business around digital goods, you have to have some way to impose scarcity on the, on the economy. 
And in the initial model, and this is, you know, the Bill Gates, Microsoft model, it goes all the way back to the letter to hobbyists, you know, in 1977. Um, he asserted intellectual property around his digital goods and used his control of legal control of that intellectual property as a way to impose a false scarcity on what is fundamentally a zero cost good. Um, and that worked for a long time in terms of generating money. Um, it also generated a cleavage in communities of software development. This is why um, folks like Richard Stallman reacted. That's one of the reasons I assume Richard reacted so strongly to this change. Uh, he was working in an open software community. And as proprietary software began taking over chunks of that community, he was effectively locked. Those, those chunks of development were effectively locked out of his intellectual universe. Um, and that was profoundly dislocating. Um, and we see it as one of the things the open source free software community has put back together. Now we have these community, intellectual communities, which can function without this artificial um, sort of property fence building, um, which is great. But we've now come back to the same problem, which Bill Gates solved for himself, which is uh, there's there's no scarcity there or rather you have to choose where the scarcity is so if the intellectual goods themselves are not scarce the question when you're trying to build an organization which can generate revenue to support the continuing evolution of these goods is what is what are you going to what is scarce what can you actually put a price on and the most obvious piece um the most tractable piece is expertise um, there is a limited number, a limited supply of expertise, or at least it's, it's not a supply that you can grow quickly. Um, there's a limited supply of expertise around these pieces of software. There's only so many PostGIS experts. There's only so many Postgres experts. You can make new ones, um, but it takes a long time. So there is a scarcity um, of, of expertise, and you can sell access to that expertise in various ways. And this is sort of the Red Hat model. It's like, Aha, what are we going to do with this expertise? Well... The thing that enterprises have gotten used to paying money for is support. Another way of thinking of it is insurance. But, you know, the question of when things go wrong, how do I make things not wrong? Obvious answer to that is I need ex immediate ex access to expertise. Um, I need fractional ex access to expertise. I don't want to hire a whole expert. That's expensive. But I want occasionally to have access to 5% of an expert. Who's going to give me that? Oh, I just give Red Hat $2,000 a year and then I, I get that back. That's that's a great way to do it. I'm getting access to the scarce resource expertise um, and Red Hat has monetized that and built a whole very successful business on it. Um, there's similar uh, models. My personal career was built around um, consulting in the geospatial space, which started off consulting in proprietary products and eventually moved over to open source tools, including tools which we as a company built. Um, and we used our position as the commercial experts and the things we built to leverage our consulting business, you know, building new features and giving people training on how to use the software. So again, scarcity around expertise, we sell that. Um, that works and it works pretty well. It doesn't work necessarily at scale. Like one of the complaints people had or criticisms they had with Red Hat was like, Red Hat is the only company that's ever managed to build a sort of enterprise size business around the uh, the packaging and selling of expertise. You know, all the other attempts have been very, very small and no one has really ever achieved the, the Red Hat scale at that model. And while that is true, um, it also really undervalues or undersells the large ecosystem of small companies that have in fact managed to make that model work. Nobody, however, is getting Bill Gates rich on that model and nobody ever will get Bill Gates rich on that model because while expertise is hard to grow, it's not impossible to grow. Um, and so the, the pools of expertise, <laughs> the pools of expertise do get bigger as the ecosystems around software get bigger. So one, one can only monopolize so much um, expertise and, and sell it as a scarce resource. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the model of selling expertise only works as long as the um, customer base of people who want to buy expertise is big enough. And that's where the, um, the growth of the cloud providers makes me go, Whoa. because when there's 
5,000 or 50,000 enterprises all spinning Postgres, um, then there's 50,000 better customers, all of which might pay us, you know, $2,000 a server to have us on call to help them with their Postgres problems. When the population of organizations that are spinning Postgres collapses down to four cloud providers, um, there's no one to sell to anymore. And that, you know, can just sort of decimate this existing ecosystem of small scale experts um, selling their expertise. And, and, that, and that's what I see coming down the pike. And it's coming down the pike simultaneous with, you know, the observation that a lot of these cloud providers don't invest as much in the software they're spinning. Um, and then the most obvious sort of like hits you in the face with the baseball bat example of that. It's the one yes. that I cited in my yep. talk, which in Postgres, the Postgres community, Postgres is a database that everybody knows about because it's really popular and widely spread. Um, this is not a niche piece of software. Um, it has a contributor community of hundreds of people, a committer uh, base of a couple dozen. Um, that committer base, uh, in terms of who employs them to work on Postgres is dominated by uh, what at the time I gave the talk was three and is now two um, enterprise support companies built in sort of the Red Hat model, one of which is Crunchy Data, who I work for, and the other which is Enterprise DB, which recently merged with Second Quadrant, which was the third one, so now we're down to two. Um, Two-thirds of the committer base are people who work for those two companies. Um, these are, you know, successful companies. Uh, Crunchy, Crunchy Data has over 100 staff. Enterprise DB is bigger yet. Um, but, you know, none, none of them are multi-billion dollar behemoths. Um, they make way less money off Postgres than AWS does, for sure. Um, but they bear most of the development load. Now, if things flip around for some reason in some way in the future and the cloud providers start contributing to the software they're spinning at a level which is commensurate with the revenue that they're generating from it, then things will be fine, although you kind of worry about the stability and... Um, I don't know, the correct decision-making power of communities that are dominated by commercial um, forces. Yep. <laughs> a few, a small number, it's like commercial forces, it's fine. It's just like the smaller the number of, of enterprises which are involved in the development of a, of a software, the more likely that the direction of that software will be bent in ways that are not about servicing the people who use the software, but about servicing the people who maintain the software. Um, and that, I think, is is bad. Um, the same way that, you know, you see proprietary software companies doing user hostile things all the time because it's revenue positive. Um, you really don't want to get in that space. And that's where diverse communities are good. Communities like Postgres, like Linux, where lots and lots of companies are, are doing stuff. So as that, that sort of collapsing phase as fewer and fewer organizations are providing the development could be a bad thing, but I'd rather have more development in fewer organizations than no development. Like if, as these cloud, oh, if these cloud companies stop out um, the other contributors by slowly munching up their marketplaces um, without contributing um, and filling in the gaps that are being taken away, then things could get bad. And I don't like that. I don't like the sense that the only customer for um, for open source developers will increasingly be. Um, a few cloud providers who then in turn yeah. sit between the developer and the actual end user. Um, I mean, there's I mean, sort of most, most of the cloud providers, providers acquired small software, software companies along the way. There have been some acquisitions along the way. Um, they, I mean, I'm surprised the extent to which and I'm, again, I'm speaking mostly about the Postgres ecosystem because the one that's in my face all the time. The extent to which cloud, um, the cloud companies have not, from a marketing point of view, attempted to leverage their relative expertise in the underlying open source project. And I don't know if that's because they feel like it destroys their sense of differentiation from the community project. 
Um, but yeah, Microsoft acquired Citus DB, which has a number of contributors and has been one of sort of the more active, innovative uh, members of the community over the last five years. They acquired them two years ago, a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big company with deep expertise, which now are Microsoft employees working on Azure's and Postgres deployments. Um, I don't know of any similar acquisition on the case of Google. Um, AWS acquired, uh, I might, might mangle the name, I think it was OpenSCG, not primarily a group of developers, but a group of fairly skilled consultants. Um, so they were acquiring them mostly in order to onboard new customers onto their Postgres, but not, so that's good for, you know, moving more people from Oracle to Postgres, but really didn't do a great deal for in terms of Amazon's contribution to the overall develop, software development or the development of the community project. Okay, okay. So, so, I mean, you raised that question, right, that um, uh, open source is easy, uh, well, software is easy to replicate. And um, mm-hmm. so your uh, most of the, you know, like the enterprise DBs, like the Redis Labs, they, they employ a lot of staff, uh, similar with um, uh, the, the Hadoop companies in their day. Uh, they, they pretty much all the core committers uh, tended to work for those companies, right? Um, for Postgres, obviously, being a lot and all the project and, and more uh, involvement, there is um, uh, a much diverser, uh, let's say, um, base of, of committers. But, um, uh, I mean, all these can, <laughs> all the developers for the open source software apps, they have to earn a living, right? So how do you see this as a, as a solution going forward? Because it's kind of against a lot of the principles that most open source developers have, that software should be free and you don't want to restrict it um, to want to, to be available. Um, so, so how do you see that um, uh, as a solution going forward? So a lot of the a lot of the noise in the last year around um, commercial open source has been concentrated on a few companies. Um, a lot of them, ironically or interestingly, in the database space, um, like you mentioned, Redis, um, Mongo, mm-hmm. Elastic, right? And there's been this yep. uh, wrapping of <laughs> these companies wrap themselves in the flag of open source. Um, while saying mean things about uh, the cloud companies. And and while I do exactly the same thing, I wrap myself in the flag of open source and I say mean things about the cloud companies, I come from a very different space um, and have very little time for these large venture-backed um, sort of single vendor projects because I don't believe they're fundamentally about open source or to the extent that they were from the start, like say Redis, um, the very act of taking on a major venture investment and then concentrating all expertise in one corporate entity and then increasingly concentrating um, copyright so that you can then begin to control IP and do a Bill Gates on on your software and your community. Um, I don't feel like that's exactly the open source ethic and the gravitational force of venture capital money is to try to create a situation of scarcity so that you can make it that investment worthwhile. And we know that you know, terms of VC investments are not return us 10% a year. It's, it's return <laughs> us 50% a year. It's really crazy hockey stick growth of the kind which no one has really managed to extract from open source communities while keeping them open source. Um, so, yeah, it worries me to no end to see these folks uh, claiming the mantle of open source because they don't, some of them are very clear about it. You know, they say, you know, open source, we're not an open source company, we're a, we're a software company, and open source is just the big yeah, open, sales funnel. It's how we get leads, it's not how we operate or how we intend to generate mm. revenue. And if that's not really the core, the ethical core, then why? Call themselves open core, right? So, so Correct. they're still, yeah. still yeah. That's exactly, well, and the question then, I mean, the trouble with open core, open core sounds great, right? From a, like you stand far enough away from it, you say, that's perfect. That balances the two things just right. You know, you know, you got this open thing in the middle that everyone can collaborate on and it's sort of like the big engine. And then the open core company just sells widgets around the edges. Mm-hmm. But particularly when the open core company um, 
controls the IP all the way from the center to the edges, they're immediately in a huge conflict of interest with respect to where that boundary lies. Um, and because they control the copyright, they actually have the ability to move that boundary in and out. And that's what we've seen happen with Elastic. Just like they have decided, I guess with Redis as well, they've decided to move the boundary unilaterally in a way which the other people who thought they were contributing their code to an open source project find like, <laughs> like you're expropriating my work for your, for your, uh, for your gain. That's just, that's not, that's not good or fair. That's not the way open source communities are supposed to work. Um, it felt like a right way to make the balance. You know, everyone can work together in the middle and then we'll get enough money from the edges to keep the middle going. The other thing aspect of the sort of the way this provides perverse incentives is like, you're making lots of money from your stuff around the edges as a proprietor, as an open core company. Um, where do you invest your money? Do you, how much, how much of your money do you mm. spend on that core, which makes you no money at all? It's like over time, it feels like the incentives all go the wrong way, either to make the close things down and squish out the open core entirely, or to just under invest in it and put all your money into the stuff around the edges until eventually you, can just jettison or not care about the so-called core anymore. You've built yourself a, um, a business based around, again, IP scarcity um, and locked in a bunch of customers. And that's the part that gets me. I mean, I started in consulting and there's, there's two kinds of, I found there's two kinds of people in the IT consulting world. Um, there are the, the tinkerers, um, and these are people who, if you come up to them and say, wow, that's a, that's a really cool solution to my problem you did, they will not be able to help telling you, um, exactly which widgets they put together and how they put them together. Um, and why it's really cool that they pick the particular widgets. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so fun. Technology is so fun. I'm a tinkerer. Um, the, the other kind of people are the wizards and, and they will say, well, you know, it's, it's great. It's, 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 it's technology. It's magic. I, I, I would try to explain it to you, but it's really, it's really far too complex. <laughs> and oh, those people made me so mad. I hated the wizards because they're only, they always, I mean, the only reason you play a wizard is so you can screw your customers. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of ethic, you know, the wizards live in proprietary world. Um, they don't want you to worry your sweet little head about the detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just going to solve your problem for you. And all you have to do is add money. And there's a, spectrum a large chunk of the customer market who is like thank god i don't have to think about the details just take my money please um but that only sort of works in the long run as long as you're dealing with i don't know ethical wizards and i've met more than my fair share of deeply unethical wizards and uh yeah it's it's i, I feel to like open fair, source is uh, a corrective to that yeah, it's not just in consulting, right? But, um, mm-hmm. I've also heard stories of, of customers that mention certain vendors coming in and saying, oh, yeah, how does the scaling work? Oh, it's magic. You don't need to know, right? <laughs> it's, it's oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Let me jump right in here uh, because I just uh, – you see, I have a vast network of, of companies that I talk to in terms of pro- – technology progression and kind of um, open source ideas, technologies and all the rest of it. Uh, so there's this company called Terminus DB. I don't know if you're, if you're, if you're familiar with that. It's essentially a graph DB sitting on top of a Git-like storage engine. And funny enough, what they did is actually they changed their licensing model from a Faro GPL mm-hmm. to, I think, Apache 2.0 last year. And get this, we want to make it easier for, for, for companies to incorporate our tech in their stack. Yeah. Hence the move to a more liberal licensing model. And the, and the only monetization model that, the model that they have is essentially a very GitHub-like thing where they operate a hub-like structure where you can commit all you want, but if you want to have your privacy, you pay for it. Right. Any thoughts on this? I'm not sure what they get out of making their core free. Then, um, they might get some, I mean, if they're, if they're lucky, they get an independent community that, that builds and elaborates it's, on their core. And then that's, that's sorry, great. 
No, no, this is sorry. It's not the core that, that that's free. Yeah. It's, it's the whole stack that's free. Yeah, um, the whole thing. That's what I mean. I mean, their core, yeah. what, what they what they would call their intellectual property, the things which which they have built. They said, okay, everyone, code base, have, yes. everyone can have that, but we make money by operationalizing and making it super easy for end users. Um, that seems to work semi okay, um, and it depends a lot on sort of whether how flexible the core is or how, how easy it is to stand up, stand up that core. Um, like how much value does, do they provide, um, to, to an end user with their, uh, with their hosted service versus being able to stand it up and run it on your own. Um, it feels like for, for those, those plays, they end up playing in a potentially in a narrow space. So at the bottom of the space, there are individuals and individuals, they want access to the to the capability, but they're not necessarily. They don't have an ops team. They don't want to run things themselves. Um, if the if the product is sufficiently difficult to run, then they won't. They'll be very happy just to come and give you their incremental chunk of money. Um, but there's not that generally speaking, unless you're in a really great consumer space. There's not that many of those people. Um, that population at the price point they're willing to pay is mm, dicey. Uh, the next level up, you get to like businesses who are willing to pay, pay better dollar. Um, but still, you know, it's not their business. They don't want to spin discs. You can spin discs for them. Great. Here's a, here's a bigger hunk of money. Um, and then the next level up is like organizations where, you know, you would charge them a million bucks a year for the privilege, but they go, Oh, we want this facility. And all I need is a little bit of ops expertise. To run it, run it myself, and pay you nothing except maybe I'll contribute some patches back when I find broken stuff. Great, I'll do that. So it, it kind of caps. Basically, they're working this capped market, and again, incentives. Um, at that point, there's a strong incentive to not make it easy to deploy, um, because the easier it is to deploy, the the lower that ceiling of what is the largest, <laughs> what is the largest organization we can sell to. The lower that ceiling falls. Um, I, before I moved to Crunchy Data, which is sort of a pure Red Hat model, um, I worked for a company called Cardo, which is very much the model you're talking about. Um, their software is built around PostGIS and Postgres, um, and a mapping engine called Mapnik. Um, those are like big hunks of, of C, C++ code that do the core work. And then around it, they arrayed a bunch of web services and a cool web UI to solve the problem that people actually wanted to solve, which was, I have some spatial data and I want to see a pretty map on the web. Um, and then they've done the same thing that, that your, uh, your company example did. Everything is open source from bottom to the top. And, uh, they're, uh, they started off, you know, trying to sell the individuals and there were lots of individuals who wanted to do it, um, in a freemium model, but most of those people preferred the free to the EM. Um, they were get, able to get some sales to, to individuals, but it was never enough to really get that, uh, lovely venture capital hockey stick growth. Um, and have been increasingly selling to, to large enterprises. And, uh, and to the extent they've been successful and popular, it's driven this aftermarket around their software. So you can, um, spin CardoDB on Amazon without giving Cardo a dime. And I think that tends to push down the threshold of enterprises to which they can sell. It's, it is, it's a good model, I think, but a, you know, it's, it's not a good venture capital model, um, because it doesn't, I don't think there is a good venture capital for model for open source, but basically all of these models have by virtue of the fact they're dealing with, um, not a lot of scarcity. They have very relatively low ceilings on how much revenue they can generate. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, well, I, I just think, it's, 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 uh, I think it results in perverse expectations in the marketplace for what open source will do. One of the things, um, you know, this is the year of the Linux desktop, right? This is the year of the Linux desktop. Again. Right? Again, it's the year of the Linux desktop. Right? Where does that, you know, where does that come from? Like, that, that comes from a deep, like, heartfelt 
since, you know, in 1998, <laughs> that my God, you know, if only we could, if people would see the light, um, we could get rid of this Microsoft <laughs> behemoth, this, this demon squid that's wrapped around our faces. <clears throat> Um, and all we need is the Linux desktop. And the same thing, you know, has occurred in terms of people's perception of open source in the geospatial field where I work. You know, there's this company called Esri. They control like 90% of the marketplace. Um, and people are always talking about open source as if like it's going to come and muscle out Esri and Esri won't be there anymore. It's like, you know, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. It finds its place in the niches and it generates some value and people take some of that and are able to put it back into the software. And it's a shame, it's a crying shame that it can't or doesn't extract as much value from the economic marketplace as licensed IP does. Um, but it seems very hard to build models that have that extractive capacity and do not break the open source thing, the thing about open yeah. source that we like at the same exactly. time. I mean, in your presentation, you, you mentioned uh, a possible solution to this, right? Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that one? Well, let's get into the idea that um, that this software, which you know increasingly is everywhere, right? I mean, it's the crazy thing mm -hmm. about you know Google or any of these you know multi-billion dollars, huge organizations or governments or anything now, like to, to an extent that no one in a decision-making capacity really appreciates, they're all built on open source software. And, you know, it feels like, you know, when someone in a sharp suit comes around with a, with a brochure about the, you know, the latest web-based technology for managing your thus and so, um, that it's, it's, it's the private sector and, you know, busy, busy, busy companies, you know, building and selling software to each other, that, that's the economy. The reality is, you know, 98% of this iceberg is open source software. And it really is the fabric on which our information economy runs. It is the highways and the sewer pipes. And, uh, and we don't value it or invest in it in the same way that we do the other, you know, key pieces of armatures of our economy. Like we recognize that if you let the highways fall into disrepair long enough, um, your ability to run a modern industrial economy will fall apart. Um, and so we don't let the highways fall into disrepair. We build new ones and we make sure the ones that we have are paved and kept up to date. Um, and we recognize that we are, because we're enabling other people's private profit, we're going to take some of that private profit from them and use it to, to keep that infrastructure up and running. And we do not have at this point a system to move the money from the places where it's being made to the places where it needs to be spent in the software ecosystem. Um, I think it's worth analogizing infrastructure spending every time we talk about open source software at this point because open source software is so infrastructural to everything we do in the technology world. And it's very weird that we outsource the maintenance of this key infrastructure to a bunch of folks and organizations <laughs> that appear to look at it as a form of charitable giving. Uh, the open, what is it? The, uh, it's called the Core Infrastructure Initiative. Um, it is a branch of the Linux Foundation. It was spun up two and a half years ago, three years ago, maybe more, um, after the Heartbleed incident. Uh, does anyone remember the Heartbleed incident? In oh, yeah. Incident? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. So, should, should I explain oh, it? No, no, no. Well, maybe for the one, for the one or two listeners who do not know what heartbeat is. <laughs> heartbeat Sorry, heartbeat. Is. Yeah, um, so, uh, heartbeat. Heartbeat. Yeah. So every uh, every web browser, um, when you're uh, when you're doing online commerce, uh, you see the little little lock in the top of your web browser. It means that it's established a secure socket slayer connection between your browser and the vendor, which means that in between those two points, no one can read it. It's a, it's a cryptographic networking library. Um, called OpenSSL provides um, the uh, the support for that for that protocol, and it's used in every every piece of software that that does that. Which is to say, all of internet commerce is built on top of OpenSSL, 
And OpenSSL, as of four years ago, uh, prior to Heartbleed, was maintained um, on a part-time basis by um, a couple of folks who you know ran a side business um, selling OpenSSL consulting, which basically meant they would occasionally add a feature um, for folks. And they didn't have a lot of time to, uh, to do the work and, uh, and a fairly important um, bug slipped in, which I don't know if anyone actually managed to use it <laughs> before it was discovered, but it was discovered and it turned out that it was, you know, every SSL connection was potentially, um, potentially openable, which meant all that private data, credit cards and so on was potentially in the clear for anyone who could, uh, could crack open unpatched servers. So the whole internet, basically everyone who ran an internet server spent, I don't know, <laughs> a frenzied couple of weeks um, <laughs> trying to patch every single server they owned uh, to get rid of this, uh, to get rid of this bug, you know, everyone you know, calculated billions of dollars in aggregate effort to, uh, to fix this thing. And in the aftermath, you know, the big companies who depend on this, the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons um, all agree that, 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 you know, this, some of this stuff is important. <laughs> And, uh, and and maybe maybe it's worthwhile to spend some money on the things that we consider important. So they created this open infrastructure initiative and each threw a couple million bucks into it. And they picked a few projects, SSL being one, open SSL being one of them that would receive grants. Um, so now open SSL is somewhat better maintained and uh, and people's eyes are a little bit opened to the fact that they're built on infrastructure, which might be poorly invested in, but but not really. And in fact, it feels like if you go back, go and read the activities of the core infrastructure initiative, you find that it seems to be pretty much a defunct um, project of the Linux Foundation. People seem to have gotten past that and forgotten about it again. And it will not be until we have our next big, big break that people will once again realize that they are building incredibly valuable bridges on top of foundations that are made of unmortared sand and that there really needs to be regular comprehensive investment. And the, the trouble is this is a supranational problem, right? This is not a problem which ends inside national borders, um, but it is feels very much like a governmental problem. Like it's a problem where there should be someone taking taxes from the rich, that is to say the folks who are making money off this infrastructure and spending those taxes on making sure that infrastructure is maintained. Um, so far it's not happening. And uh, you know, the result is we'll have more heart bleeds over time. Um, and, you know, we'll have, as we would have if we were living in a country with broken down water systems and falling apart roads, we will have a less effective, less efficient economy as a result of our underinvestment in this infrastructure. I think this is a, a subject very close to Chris's heart because he's uh, very much a communist. <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in indeed, but then I live in a communist country called Germany. <laughs> Yeah. With a working healthcare system and uh, somewhat mm. crazy government at the moment anyway, but that's another story for another time. No, it's an interesting perspective because at the very core, I think what you just kind of elaborately described was at the very foundation when guys like Richard Stallman and other people thought about that ideas must be free. And hence this term, free and open source. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Richard, if you're listening, <laughs> free software, <laughs> not free and open source software. <laughs> to which I totally do, uh, subscribe. But at the end of the day, full disclosure, I work for an open core company called Redis Labs. Ah. Um, yes, <laughs> so did Martin, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he now moved, I think, to a more proprietary model. I, I, I was actually <laughs> at um, Enterprise DB before that, so it's, it's oh, really? an, an, another old core company. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Although, I don't know, that was an interesting one. The the evolution of Enterprise DB, I don't know how open core they are these days. They certainly were started off as with very much that, uh, that mm -hmm. principle, but it feels like the actual marketplace for just Pure on good old support of pure uh, community Postgres has been a place they've been pulled just by market demand. Having full, fully disclosed that I'm a true communist <laughs> at heart, yeah. I see actually, as a matter of fact, jokes aside, I see both sides of the coin. You got to make some money somehow, and it's the right business model that you that you got to pick. And I find this move of terminus to be quite an interesting one. And when I talked to these folks quite a while back, 
they said our final monetization strategy still remains decided upon. I think they are after the third round of VC funding or something like this, but mm. they're coming from an academic background because, yes, full disclosure, it's a Trinity College Dublin project uh, at the at the very at the very school where I did my PhD about thirty years ago almost. So it's it's interesting basically to see where these folks go because essentially what started out as a pure research project now is taking its first steps into into the commercial realm. And as I said, the the people who made the, the conscious decision basically to move away from an Afero GPL type model to what's Apache two point because they want to foster the adoption of the tech in more closed source tech stacks. And as we mm. all know, some yeah. people consider the GPLs of the world, especially the AGPLs and the referral GPL, to be quite toxic when it comes down to particular use cases because what this, uh, what this GPL essentially mandates that you have to publish every change that you make to the code base. And the referral goes that one step further because it doesn't stop at modifying the code base, but rather competence you actually communicate with also mm. um, that you have to also open source. So this is the reason why it's also known as the cloud GPL, because essentially what cloud providers would have to do if they would use AGPL license models, uh, license components rather, they would have to open source the surrounding ecosystem. Of course, over, oversimplifying things, but that's essentially the nutshell of AGPL and friends. And I totally get this uh, move from Terminus to be to say, now look, if you want to take our code, pretty much like Redis actually in the olden days and still is because it's, it's, it's licensed under three class BSD, just take it, do whatever you want with it because we do not restrict the usage rights and we especially do not mandate Opening up your code base like GPL and AGPL do. Yeah, that's good. Certainly in my experience, it's been easier to grow communities that are based around fairly non-restrictive open source licenses. Um, you know, I've been in MIT and BSD communities and you don't have to deal with all the questions. <laughs> Um, Postis, for for reasons of strange historicism, um, ended up with a GPL license, even though um, Postgres is a is a Berkeley uh, is a Berkeley license, um, and it's resulted in no good, as far as I can tell. I mean, it's not it's not uh, it's not saved us from anything bad happening, and has resulted in me having to ask, answer questions about the uh, implications of it being GPL. Um, quite frequently over the years. And then, you know, it's always like, don't worry, just use it. It doesn't matter because, you know, you're packaging it with the database, which you're not modifying anyways, and it's all fine. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's a lot of twitchiness and not, I don't know, it's, it's not well-earned twitchiness around the GPL. I think GPL's reputation is so much worse than its reality. Um, but it does open an interesting question, like, and this is, I guess, the next boundaries of the open source debate, which uh, these uh, these open core companies are now forcing us to grapple with, which is uh, when does a quote unquote open source license stop being open source? I mean, you've got OSI to to tell us, I guess, officially with trademark <laughs> trademark. Yeah, the um, the then, then yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but. Uh, but uh, when does it when does it change, right? I mean, we know, we recognize the GPL is quote unquote more restrictive um, than you know an MIT or a BSD license, hmm. um, and we use that term more restrictive because we recognize that it, you know in addition to providing freedoms, it also provides a few constraints in that freedom, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think the open core companies, as they come up with their what are they calling community source, whatever it would say. It's like, oh, it's still open source. We're just adding a few restrictions, just like the GPL does. Why are you saying that we're not open source anymore? And I don't know. There's there's something to that. And I think the, the something really comes back to like, it's not, it's not even a licensing question. It's like the fact of the matter is that when you are running a quote unquote community where where all the contributors or all the major contributors, you know, all the patch reviewers are employed by the same company and there, there's, there's not a community mechanism, you might be open source de jure, you know, by the, by the fact of your license, but 
de facto you aren't. And this would be like the same um, criticism that people say apply to Android and Google, right? Yeah, Android is open source, but you know, try to get a major change in that Google doesn't want. It's not going to happen, right? So is it open source or not? Well, it's open source, but uh, you can't participate in the community on equal footing with the primary developer of it. So is it open source? And well, that's, you can, that's but, the question. The question is like, well, do you have a collaborative community? Uh, well, you do. Well, you do because the AOSP project is not exactly tied to Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, um, Android Open Source Project. Okay. The, fun, the foundation upon which Zygote and, and friends build. Yeah. So, okay, so Zygote being basically the link between the kernel and yeah. the, and, and the um, ecosystem on top. But this is not an Android podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Martin, yeah. Martin, why don't you take the next question then? Yeah, we've, uh, there was a great uh, discussion about um, the fundamentals of open source, and, and uh, but I'd like to, uh, if you could spend a little bit of time on on how you run Pushtier's project, and I guess how it came sure. about in the first place. Yeah, we've, we've seen a lot of different models of of how you know, uh, yeah. uh, open source projects are are managed, uh, or a better word, or, or controlled in right. terms of contributions and so on. So, just curious how you do it with us. So, um, as I mentioned, I started my, my uh, IT professional life in consulting and geospatial consulting. And in that, um, in that role doing projects for the British Columbia government, I live in British Columbia, Canada, um, in geospatial data processing projects, um, building these data, data pipelines, like using um, a database in the middle to manage the process made a lot of sense. Turns out Postgres was that database. We were doing geospatial things. Um, so within the company, we kind of get this question like, you know, it would be so much easier if we could, when we were storing geospatial objects in the database, and we were stuffing them in as blobs. Um, mm-hmm. It would be so much nicer if those blobs had some smarts about them. We could ask geospatial <laughs> questions about them. They weren't just sitting there in the database That would be much more useful. Um, and we had a guy on staff who was fluent in C and kind of looked at the Postgres code base and extension framework and said, you know what, I think we could do this. Um, so we had some free time during a down cycle between contracts and he, uh, he got out his, uh, C compiler and, and banged out the first version of PostGIS over the course of a couple months. And, you know, we tried it. Oh, holy cow. It's just as fast as we hope it would be. And even with only four or five functions, it's actually incredibly useful. Um, we've enjoyed working with Postgres as open source database. We'll publish this thing as open source. And um, it was the first open source spatial database option at the time, which was 2001. It was like there was not, no, nothing else yeah. there. So it sort of attracted an immediate audience of folks who needed the capability um, and were excited to have it. Um, and it ran as sort of a fully dependent project of my consulting company for the next six, seven years. So... All the, the community was small, it was niche, all the development was done by people um, in our employ. The roadmap right. development was more or less, um, well, we need this functionality for the next project. Um, or what can we do that would make this project better? Oh, this function would be nice to have. And initially by, uh, by folks in-house with, with me in British Columbia, and then um, with a fellow we hired um, who had started, was like, one of the first major community contributors, like he started contributing patches and changes on his own. I don't remember what work he was doing at the time that caused him to want to do that. But regardless, when um, when the guy who'd done the core development for us left for another job, was like, huh, we don't want to stop development on it. And uh, yet we have no one on staff who can do this. So we contracted out to uh, to this developer in Rome. Um, and he worked for us part-time for a couple of years and went on to other things. And then came back. Um, he's still a member of the community. Um, but at that point, there was, you know, more than more than a handful of folks doing work and contributing. Um, and in 2008, I got tired of running a company and decided what I wanted to do was be a programmer again. Um, so I left the company and decided I'd make myself into a PostGIS expert. And we moved the uh, project into the Open Source Geospatial Foundation, which is sort of a la the Apache Foundation. Um, like a holding foundation, very low overhead. Um, and at that point, one of the uh, requirements for entry into the foundation was to have a written down governance framework. 
So we moved to like an Apache style project steering committee at that point, um, which is still the way we run. Um, we've got a PSC of five, you know, maybe a dozen mm -hmm. active contributors. And, uh, no, it's, it's very much a consensus process. Um, the core of the development community has been working together really since 2001. Um, PSC members, myself, um, Sandra Santilli, who's that Roman contractor, Regina Obey, who was like patient zero. She was like one of the first uh, <laughs> folks who came in and, and used it for a real project. She was working for the city of Boston at the time. So she started using PostGIS and Postgres for city of Boston projects. She was like, oh, holy cow, yeah. like real, real institutions are using this software. <laughs> um, and she, uh, she continued on both as a power user and increasingly as a developer. Um, over the years, she's written um, really the the canonical book on post post JS post JS in action, um, and uh, in sort of like uh, the face of the face of the project at lots of lots of conferences as well. So it's been uh, it's been a nice ride, I gotta say. Yeah, I did. I, I think the, the sorry, that I don't know if you can hear my echo, but there was definitely echo. Um, the point you you raised about you're being the consultancy and people working on it on their downtime. It's, it's something mm -hmm. that is a good model because it's something that I also saw when it was pivotal. It's like obviously contributing to a lot of open source projects, but it's, it's really when you have uh, that kind of model where you have consultants that are, you know, good at application development as well. And if they have downtime, why not contribute to open source projects that you use in the supply of your services? So that's definitely a, it's, uh, it's, it depends a lot on the community and how, again, on the good, on the good intentions of the consultants. Like consultants are great because they are at the rock face. Hmm. Um, so they're, they're right up against the customers and what the customers need. So they tend to come back with realistic and useful feedback in terms of what useful need, new features are needed or where the sore points are. Um, the downside with consultants as sort of like the armature of your development community. And this is something we see in geospatial because there's really, it's very difficult to build up a company which is big enough to afford to do core investment. Um, but you end up with sort of Christmas tree featureitis. Um, every, every consultant hangs a new feature onto the outside, but doesn't really have the, um, the resources to sort of do full-time maintenance work or to do um, core development projects that exceed a certain size. Um, that, that kind of big investment is still, is, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to coordinate getting all the money into one pot at one time. It's like, I have a hundred thousand dollar problem. <laughs> it's like, I've got, I've got ten ten thousand dollar clients. It's very difficult to get those ten ten thousand dollar clients to all give you $10,000 simultaneously yeah. to do the hundred thousand dollar project. And as a result, the hundred thousand dollar projects just often don't get done. And the project just sort of limps along from stage to stage to stage, adding new bits around the edges, but getting kind of crusty in the middle. Okay. Uh, so, sorry, Chris. Uh, given what you said about uh, open source and business models around it, I, I take it you don't see a um, post-GIS commercial company uh, emerging at any point? Uh, seems unlikely. Uh, just, just, again, it's a matter of scale. Uh, the amount of uptake in PostGIS over the past five years means that actually maybe it's, it's possible now to run a, a fairly small company just around the basis of providing, uh, you know, things like training and, um, and sort of the, you know, performance consulting side. Um, maybe some sort of a subscription support model, although it, it's very hard to, to make that, to make that work. Um, because people, Selling support is basically selling insurance. Um, it has to be either like deeply socialized, like my house has never burned down <laughs> and yet I hold fire insurance. Like what? Why? Um, you know, and why? Because everyone does. Like everyone gets fire insurance. This is what you do, right? Um, and we don't really have that socialization around, you know, getting a support contract for the open source software you use. And the only reason people do it is because they're used to doing it because they were forced to do it by their former proprietary vendors. Um, not because they've really internalized the idea that buying the insurance means that when the house burns down, they will in fact not be left homeless. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more than just insurance. Right? It's, it's also that um, yeah, a lot of organizations, they, they don't really want to be in the business of, of um, say there is uh, 
the implementation part or the you know, even, uh, uh, finding bugs or whatever it is that they come across when they're using the software, they're, they're in the business of selling books or whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that, yeah. That's kind of, uh, yeah, um, it goes a little bit beyond. And this, I think uh, you, know, you mentioned the cloud vendors, that's why they're doing so well. It's um, uh, it, It's taken away a lot of the um, uh, overhead of, of running an IT department uh, to some degree. Right. Um, because it's not the core business that people are doing. <laughs> so, yeah, no problem. And how do you see the, uh, the, the future of those GIS? Do you, do you see, I mean, there's, it's very complete in terms of functionality. Right? I, I would say, uh, uh, some people consider it even, uh, preferred over, say, Oracle Geospatial. Uh, oh, yeah. I would say that. I see that. Yeah. That's pretty fair. Um, feature wise, it's, it's got Oracle beat now. Um, I think the answer is sort of on the, on the boundaries of what you can do with spatial and database, there's always, a, there's always more things to add. Um, so more spatial algorithms. Um, and then I feel like there is, a, there's a big opportunity as sort of an orchestration point. Um, people don't talk about this aspect of Postgres enough to think about, oh, it's a relational database sort of full stop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with things like uh, foreign data wrapper extensions, um, with things like language extensions, Postgres is, it's not like, you know, it's not like Python or Perl. It's an integration environment. It's a place where you can pull a whole bunch of capabilities together in one spot. Um, so I, one of the things I'm experimenting with, and I blogged about it recently, is accessing large corpuses of raster data that sit outside the database, uh-huh. but using SQL inside the database. Um, and then reaching out to those raster uh, raster files in the cloud and querying them in the database and bringing that those answers back into the database for further uh, to for further calculation. Okay, that has been a more more than interesting discussion, Paul. Yeah, brilliant. Thank thank you very much for for being here. And uh, needless to say, yeah. Be, before we forget, of course, the tradition, <laughs> the legacy. Yes. <laughs> Um, we do always something, if I remember, if I can't remember that is, <laughs> something like the pox as in the picks of the week. So anything that you've come across, not necessarily within the last week, but maybe in the last fortnight or something, maybe even in the last month, worth mentioning, now, now is the time, that can be anything. Martin normally basically focuses on movies. <laughs> I okay. focus on TV series. <laughs> Uh, I or, go, uh, or the weather or something. Yeah, a little deeper. I, I just finished off a book called The Price of Peace. It is a biography of John Maynard Keynes and an exploration of his life and thought. And if you're at all interested in economics and history and the intellectual period between the First and Second World Wars, um, it's well worth the read. And I found it bracing both for the history and also for a reminder and there's a belief that that Keynes very much held and has been lost in, in our understanding of him we think of him mostly in terms of like technical manipulations of the economy around interest rates and unemployment but really you know his philosophy of economics is around the fact that we do not exist to serve economies economies exist to serve us and the goal of economy of an economy should be to provide a good life for everyone. Um, and that's that's what we should be looking at when we're trying to tinker with our economy. I think that same that same thing runs through, you know, our sense of software in the open source world. I think people who do open source will probably enjoy the book and enjoy the philosophy. Excellent. Martin, anything from your side? Uh, we only did some yesterday. Actually. <laughs> for me, yes. no, I haven't full, done anything. Full disclosure, people: we are recording now every single day. Yeah. In terms wow. of episodes. <laughs> yeah, we 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 intend to basically fill the backlog until twenty thirty two. Within twenty twenty one, yes. <laughs> no jokes aside. No, just in case that. Sometimes the recordings are pretty close to each other. That's really basically why why Martin can't think of can't think of anything. But maybe I can I can um, venture a pox on myself. <laughs> venture pox myself. I full disclosure, as most of the listeners probably know, I live in Germany, and now the federal government has decided to ease some of the lockdown. So what I'm looking for uh, lockdown. Lockdown yeah. feature yeah. straight, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes, we can go now into DIY stores and pick up shovels and <laughs> um, whatever and plants and so forth. 
And of course, barbers. <laughs> I'm sure been... you're looking forward to that one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And barbers have been open since Monday. And I think Ooh. if, yes, if the current, um, News coverage is, is anything to go by for the UK. Martin is still looking forward to that point in time when barbers are, are, are open once again. No, no, it's, it's okay. I bought a set of clippers at the start of the last. <laughs> yeah. so, smart move. Who, who smart needs a barber these days? <laughs> <laughs> Especially since we're not going anywhere. So, so Martin's antipox, I reckon, would be still the ongoing UK lockdown. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay. Okay. Jokes aside, uh, Paul, thank you very much again for being here. Yeah, uh, great. thank you. Uh, looking forward to having you having you around in a fortnight when we record epi, when we record episode uh, 256 to be aired around 2025. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if not then, then in another two years, I can guarantee you my thinking about open source and the economics will have uh, have evolved another two years, and I'll have a whole other point of view to bring. Perfect. This is the Linux in laws. You come for the knowledge, but stay. For the madness. Thank, Thank you for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margo, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under Creative Commons at Jamando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. Oh, there we go. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's gone now then. Martin, of course. Uh, yeah, this, this is the queue where Chris says, rolling. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.